In recent weeks, our consideration of the doctrine of divine providence has led us through a number of biblical narratives. Some of you are just visiting with us today, but others have been with us week in and week out as we've made our way through these accounts. And each of these historical accounts revealed God's sovereign ordination of all that comes to pass and His active governance even of the sinful deeds of people. God is not evil. God tempts no one to sin. Yet we have seen the Lord seated on His throne, sovereignly permitting demonic creatures to tempt people to sin. We have seen Him setting the terms and the limits of demonic activity. We have seen Him steering the outcome of the sinful choices that people make to fulfill His sovereign purposes even through those sins. And so at this point in the series, I think it's right to ask, what do you believe? What does God have to do with the evil choices that people make? Many Christians quickly respond, well, God has absolutely nothing to do with anything evil. He has nothing to do with tragedy. Nothing to do with suffering. Nothing to do with sin. Nothing at all. But what does the Bible say? What does God have to do with murder and natural disaster? Let's review. Job 1, Satan says to God, stretch out your hand and touch all that Job has. And God says to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Saban and Chaldean raiders murder nearly all of Job's servants and steal his livestock. Two natural disasters claim the lives of all but one of Job's shepherds and all ten of his children. And what does the Word say? God says to Satan these words, You incited me against him to destroy him. And Job says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away through natural disaster, murder, and theft. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, the biblical author helps us, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. What does God have to do with sibling hatred? Hatred so intense, the brothers of Joseph actually sell their brother into slavery. Joseph says to his brothers in Egypt, you sold me here. But ultimately, Joseph says, God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Genesis 50, he says, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, God says. And Pharaoh indeed disobeys the Word of God. In 2 Samuel 24, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and He incited David against them. Of David's sin in 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 1, we read that Satan incited David to number the people. 
and God severely judges him. What does God have to do with lying and deception? 1 Kings 22, the prophet Micaiah sees a vision of the spirits gathered around the throne of God, beside the throne of God. And they are, in a sense, interviewing for the job to entice Israel's king Ahab to attack Syria. God has determined to judge Ahab to take his life because of his rebellion. And he asks the demonic council, who will entice Ahab? I quote from 1 Kings 22. Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, and one said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And God says, quote, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Micaiah says to Ahab, Now therefore behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has done this. We've seen the Bible consistently teaches that understood in the right sense, God has everything to do with evil. He sovereignly ordains the evil choices that people make and governs those choices to serve His pure and perfect and ultimate purposes. God rules with absolute authority over all things, ordaining all that comes to pass. Not simply the good things, not simply the blessings, not simply what we like to see happen. This reality is further witnessed in the biblical descriptives of the birth and the infancy and ultimately of the death of Jesus of Nazareth. We have in the birth narratives of Christ a unique study in the doctrine of divine providence. We witness again the truth that God ordains even the sinful choices that people make, working in confluence with those choices to accomplish His ultimate purposes for His glory and for the good of His people. Remember Micah 5. We looked at it last year at this time, but let's turn to Micah chapter 5. Let's consider first of all the birth of Jesus and His birth in Bethlehem of Judea. Through the centuries, God progressively prepared His people to identify the true Messiah. How did He do that? With numerous prophecies. One of those prophecies was where Messiah would be born. His birthplace is identified as Bethlehem, the city of David. Eight centuries before Jesus was born, God revealed this location to Micah the prophet. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 reads, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old and from ancient times. Ephrathah, that ancient name of Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. The clan was responsible to supply a thousand soldiers when summoned to battle. This village of Bethlehem could not even do that. 
It was so small and so insignificant, yet in this insignificant place, in one sense, from you shall come forth for me one who is ruler in Israel. Now, this had happened before. This is the city of King David. Micah writes some 200 years after King David was born here, but there will be a future king who will come from Bethlehem. A king whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. In other words, this future king will be a descendant of Israel's greatest king, David. But the mere prophecy of a future king indicates that this king will be a rival to David in greatness, if not a superior. Cryptically, the prophet does not mention David at all, but speaks of this one, this future king, whose roots are in ancient history. So God has spoken. He has decreed that His Messiah will be born a child in Bethlehem. Will God's Word prevail? 800 years before Jesus is born. Will His Word prevail? Isaiah 55 says of God, So shall My Word be that goes out from My mouth. It shall not return to Me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. 800 years later, the religious leaders and biblical scholars of Israel knew and agreed that this Messiah had not yet come. This Messiah of divinic lineage was yet to arrive, though they had waited for eight centuries. A three to four day journey to the north lay the town of Nazareth where Joseph and Mary live. In a rough parallel, that might be like someone today going by car from San Francisco to New York City. It's about the journey that they would have faced time-wise in their setting and a lot more rigorous. But it was a, a long ways apart. We go to Luke chapter 2. And read again as we've read earlier today, Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. God's Word will stand. He will accomplish what He has purposed. We note in this narrative how God does that. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. In late 5 B.C. or early 4 B.C., the pagan Roman emperor Augustus decrees that the subjects of Rome register in the towns of their birth. Well, why is that? By registering people at their birthplaces, Rome could track family connections and that might help them in an insurrection. It was also probably to gather them for taxation purposes. We don't know all of the reasons here. We do know that Judea was part of the Syrian province over which Quirinius exercised jurisdiction. And all of the people are going to conform to what Rome has demanded. Verse 4, And Joseph also then went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. So if we could put it in our day, and we don't want to do that ultimately, but 
here's this young couple. She is very well along in her pregnancy and, and they get in their old beat up car in San Francisco and make their way on a three to four day journey across the country to New York City. They don't have a choice in the matter. This is what they must do. It's very inconvenient. Why does Joseph leave? Why does he leave Nazareth heading south and upward in terrain to Bethlehem, six miles south of Jerusalem? Why? There may have been any number of reasons. Perhaps the move was even welcome to the young couple. We don't know. But what we do know is what the text says. The text gives us only one reason. What is that reason? Because he was of the house and lineage of David. That's the reason the text gives for his departure. In other words, it is the emperor's decree that gets Joseph and Mary to leave Nazareth. We might even say forces them to leave. What had to be a major inconvenience, no matter how much they may have smiled at the opportunity to return home, this inconvenience was used by God to fulfill purposes Augustus knew nothing about. So we see Augustus freely, rationally issuing a decree he was convinced would be best for himself and best for the empire that he now led. And we see Joseph having no choice but to honor this decree, making the decision that he will obey the law. There is no indication here at all in the text that Joseph is scurrying to Bethlehem in order to fulfill Micah 5.2. Indeed, as the narrative unfolds, it appears that Joseph does not really fully comprehend who Jesus is. He's not here seeking to be guided by some heavenly light to fulfill prophecy. He's simply doing what the emperor has demanded that he do. And so he makes this four-day journey to Bethlehem at a rather inopportune time. Verse 6, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. We have two subjects of Rome honoring the emperor's decree. And the king of kings is born in Bethlehem precisely as God ordains. So again, we see here divine sovereignty working in confluence with human freedom. Augustus is emperor and he will get his way. Quirinius governs the region and the depraved King Herod I serves under him to enforce Caesar's decree. None of these officials is being coerced. God does not have this heavenly magnet over their helmets moving them around on the board to do something they don't really want to do. They are doing what they believe is wisest under the circumstances of the day. And none of them knows anything about Mary and her pregnancy. But from a divine perspective, we see that Joseph and Mary are traveling to Bethlehem because God has ordained that this is where Messiah will be born. 
Ironically, although an offspring of David, Joseph is a poor and powerless carpenter. He seems to be the pawn of Roman authorities. But Joseph and Mary are not abused victims here. They are servants of the sovereign ruler of the universe who fulfills the prophecy of Micah some 800 years earlier. Very different sense, undoubtedly, but sometimes we really feel to be almost in the same place, don't we? You ever feel like a powerless pawn at the mercy of governing forces who make up the rules as they go with no thought of how it affects you? Christian, what we can know in such times is that we must cling to the doctrine of divine providence. With absolute freedom, with perfect wisdom, with sovereign authority, God rules over every court decision. He rules over every election. He rules over every policy change, over every legislative directive. The God of the universe rules with sovereign authority over every teacher's decision, every coach's decision, every boss's move in every nation, over the face of the planet, for all time, for the glory of His name, and for the good of His people, always. God is not going to take a vacation just at the moment that your situation comes up. Are there frustrations that we face as small people in this world? There are many, aren't there? Are there unfair decisions that are made? Certainly. And we are sometimes the victims of these decisions. But we need to know this as we go out armed into this world to live for God and for His glory, that one way in which we glorify God in such situations is to have a spirit and a sense that God reigns. He's in control. I can be at peace knowing that the rudder of the universe is firmly in a sovereign God's hands. No one will touch us apart from His wisdom. He will never lose track of you. Ever. Here are these two seemingly meaningless people Pawns in a cruel universe. And God through them, through the inconvenience, through the frustration, through the weakness, is working out His sovereign purposes. This is who God is. And it's not simply because of their participation in the coming of Messiah, that God suddenly has woken up and is moving uniquely right here on this place. This is who God is all the time, in every life, and in every circumstance. Jesus' birth. We look secondly at Jesus' exodus from Egypt. Matthew chapter 2. Jesus' exodus out of Egypt. We find here again this confluence of the divine and the human In Matthew chapter 2, we read first of all of Herod's murderous scheme. Matthew chapter 2, 
Herod's murderous scheme beginning at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is He who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw His star when it rose and have come to worship Him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Whenever Herod was troubled, all Jerusalem was troubled. This guy was a maniac. And he was concerned that anyone might take some power from him. Now, he had a significant knowledge of the Jewish faith. And that's evidenced in verse 4. He assembles all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He knew the biblical scholars of the day had often discussed this question. In point of fact, they knew exactly where Messiah was to be born. Verse 5, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. Here they point to Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Bethlehem's your place, king. So Herod summons the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, striving to discern when this king had been born. Verse 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And we have this maniac loose, and this does not make him happy. Let's skip down ahead to verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time when he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. So the infant Christ is wholly susceptible to the murderous intentions of the crazed King Herod. Herod clearly will stop at nothing to get his way even murdering innocent children. He completely fails to come to terms with the God of heaven who declares in Isaiah 14, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? We see Herod's murderous scheme. But coming alongside and joining that flow, we see God's redemptive plan at work here. 
as the Magi ditch King Herod, and as Herod determines to slaughter the babies living around Bethlehem, an angel of the Lord, verse 13, appears to Joseph in a dream and says, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Why is Jesus taken to Egypt? From a human political perspective, his parents had to flee with him in order to protect his life. We have an insane, murderous king. He wants Jesus dead. Egypt is fairly close. There's a large contingent of Jews living there. And it's outside of Herod's jurisdiction. Providentially, it is then by means of Herod's murderous plot that God steers Joseph and his family to Egypt which fulfills a larger salvation historical subplot. I'll warn you here, this is a day after Christmas. It's hard to stay alive in here, isn't it? This gets deep at this point. Don't check out. Try to work with me through this section, but this goes down deep. In Hosea 11, the prophet speaks of God calling His Son Israel out of Egypt. Who is God's Son? It's Israel. As Hosea the prophet looks at this, he says that the nation of Israel, as God's Son, has been called out of Egypt in the Exodus. As one has noted, Hosea did not have Jesus in mind. But he would not have minded what Matthew did with Hosea's prophecy. There was no one-to-one correspondence here with Hosea's prophecy, out of Egypt I've called my son, as there is with the birth of Messiah in Bethlehem. So when he's born in Bethlehem, he's born in Bethlehem. That's not what Hosea is doing. He's talking about Israel. Not Jesus' trip to Egypt. However, there is in the Old Testament what D.A. Carson calls a messianic matrix in which everything points to Christ. So from the seed of the woman who will crush Satan's head to the elect son of Abraham to the prophet who will come who is greater than Moses to the son of David typology in all points the focus is directed inexorably to Messiah. And we have to be careful how we handle the Scriptures here. But as Matthew looks at Hosea He sees here a greater fulfillment. So even Hosea, though he does not explicitly reveal a connection between the exodus of Israel and Jesus' exodus out of Egypt, that connection is genuinely there in embryonic form. Remember Exodus 4? Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. Matthew 3. This is my beloved Son. The Father speaks of Christ. 
So God's son, Israel, finds refuge in Egypt and is delivered from it. In a fuller and more significant salvation development, God's Son Jesus finds refuge in Egypt and leaves there to fulfill God's saving plan. So that in a genuine, proper sense, we can say that Jesus' entrance and exodus from Egypt is a fulfillment of prophecy. It is a fuller completion of what God has intended all along and what God Himself saw as the nation of Israel left Egypt. Now that's a lot to chew on as we bring those two together. But thinking in those terms, the fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy, we go to verse 19 and read that when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. What's he saying? Leave Egypt. Leave Egypt with Messiah. And he arose, verse 21, and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. So apparently, Joseph and Mary intend to return to Bethlehem in Judea. Think of it according to their human plans. But Joseph is alarmed to learn that Herod's ruthless, cruel son, Archelaus, is ruling in Judea. And a dream confirms this fear, and Joseph takes the Holy Family back, not to Bethlehem, but further north, back to Nazareth. Archelaus acts freely as he follows his father's cruel policies. Joseph uses his wits and realizes the genuine threat that Archelaus is to his family, and he moves up again to Nazareth. So God governs the circumstances to assure that Jesus is primarily identified not as a child of Bethlehem, but as a child of Nazareth. Why? To fulfill prophecy. Now we'll not turn to a particular passage of Scripture that says this specifically. But there are many sections of Scripture, and I invite you to Isaiah 55 as we consider this point. Isaiah 55, there are many prophecies of Scripture that speak of Jesus being one who is despised. What everyone knew living in this land at this time is there's no city that's more despised than Nazareth. So Isaiah, I said 55, I believe, 53 Make that Isaiah 53 and verse 3. Prophetically says of Messiah, He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Certainly referring 
in some sense to His crucifixion, but as we see in the preceding verses referring to His life, He is one who will be despised. I use that as just one sample of many prophecies that Messiah would be despised. He will be despised in part by being noted as one from Nazareth. From that despised and mean city. Let's look at this visually if we could. As we see this whole thing put together, around location, we have down this first column, Bethlehem, Egypt, Nazareth. We have a family simply moving around according to the circumstances that they face. In all of these moves, we see God's sovereign purpose. Messiah will be born at Bethlehem. Messiah will enter Egypt for safety and come out of Egypt to fulfill His saving purposes according to the plan of God. Messiah will be known as a Nazarene, as one from Nazareth and so from Egypt, bypassing Bethlehem and coming to Nazareth. This holy family fulfills the plan of God. But is this what people would see? Only those of faith. On the outside, what we see in the whole Bethlehem situation is Emperor Augustus back in Rome wanting to take a census. A very inconvenient one. What we see in the whole matter with Egypt is Herod killing potential rivals. And what we see in the move back to Nazareth is Archelaus who will rule with ruthless cruelty as has his father. We see again the confluence of human purposes and divine sovereign will. Working together to fulfill God's ultimate purpose. God working through the selfish, sinful, frustrating, murderous, wicked purposes of man who are all acting freely and willingly according to their desires, but under the circumstances that God has ordained. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2. As we come then to the death of Jesus. We've witnessed the providence of God here so clearly in His birth, in His early days where the family is located. But we see this through His life. But I'd like to focus as we close today on His death. We come to Acts chapter 2, and as with His birth, no less with His death, God's purpose has been clearly revealed in His Word. In Isaiah 53, which we've read earlier, we move from He will be one who is despised to these words prophetically. The Word of the Lord says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. God has spoken. We move then in Acts 2 to the inaugural sermon of the infant church where Peter proclaims the Gospel to Israelites at Pentecost. And at this point in the sermon, he gets right to the heart of the Gospel. 
And notice the theme of providence again where He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did God merely see into the future and realize beforehand that people would kill Jesus? Is that what the text says? Indeed, God knew from eternity past that wicked men would crucify Messiah. He foresaw that event. But God's foreknowledge is more than simply His ability to foresee what is coming. We see certain themes and stories written this way. Someone's given the ability for a moment to see what is coming into the future. And then they respond on the basis of what they see fate has determined. But God's foreknowledge, we see here in verse 23, is something other. It is a definite plan. We could translate the Greek, His determined decree. When God foreknows what will come to pass, He is not a passive observer. He does not merely anticipate what people's actions will dictate to Him and then begins to work out a plan in response to what they've chosen to do because they operate with absolute libertarian freedom. That's not the case. What God foreknows, He ordains. He purposely determines to take place. So God chose to put Jesus in the hands of His crucifiers. Their hideous and vile actions fulfilled His ultimate purposes. Does this mean that God killed His Son? Is this an act of divine child abuse? Peter says to his hearers, it is according to the definite plan of God that you crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. We do not see God here with His hand around Jesus' neck suffocating Him. But we see God acting consistently with His nature to will, to permit the presence of sin to accomplish His ultimate purposes. We cannot get around verse 23. All of this took place according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Indeed, we should not want to get around it. We have here compatibilism. Wicked men acting freely and willingly a compatible notion to God sovereignly decreeing and determining what will happen. They do not act with what theologians call libertarian freedom. That is, they do not have the power not to kill Jesus. They willingly kill Him. They have no power not to do so. Because they are driven by the circumstances. They are driven by the flesh. They are under the assault of Satan. They are in bondage to the passions of their evil hearts. And so they willingly and freely in that sense carry out what God has decreed, crushing His heart. 
and they are fully responsible for their heinous sin. You killed Him. You killed the author of life. You did it. This is so vital because never in human history has a greater atrocity or a more wicked act with more cosmic implications ever taken place on this planet than on the day that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, was tortured and executed on Calvary. Never. Evil shrieked in triumph as it never had before and never will again. There is no more wicked story than this. No one has ever suffered greater wrong. No one has ever suffered greater indignity. No one has ever suffered more intense torture. This is the greatest pain, ultimate separation from God. And that horror took place according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. People schemed and planned an illegal trial, turning Jesus over to those with murderous intent, beatings and abuse and hatred. But in all of it, plan of God. Chapter 4, verse 27. As the apostles again witness the truth, they say, truly in this city there were gathered together against Your holy servant Jesus, whom You anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, they pray here, to do whatever Your hand and Your plan had predestined to take place. Gathered here were sinful, wicked people who did what God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. Human responsibility. Sovereign ordination. Let me say, there is great mystery in this. I cannot explain this to you in full. We're just simply dealing with what the Bible has said. There's also great angst in this, I think, for we know that it was our sins for which Christ died. Though our hands physically did not put Him to death, our sins were the cause of His death. And as those who put Him to death rejected Him, despised Him, so we reject and despise Him when we break God's law. When we lie and lust and steal, and hate. We join them in this sense to break the law of God, to defy His authority, and to say, I will do things my way. Get pushed into the right spot and you too would take life. We are with them. It's a call for those of us who are sinners and know that we have broken the law of God and know that we have despised the Son of God to come to this place and to turn to Him in salvation. To place our faith in this death according to the definite plan of God to pay the penalty of sin and in the resurrection power of this Christ to come to terms with Him to embrace His salvation. 
It is a call to those of us who have trusted in the work of Christ for our salvation to respond and to know that in all of this, Christ did this for us. We're not an afterthought. It was planned from eternity past. God brings it about that we may be here today singing the praises of Christ rather than cursing His name. And we may simply curse Him by nothing more than a beer in a football game. We may curse Him by nothing more than doting over our children. We live our life saying He doesn't matter. If you find yourself in that place today, I plead with you. Be reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ. For those of us who know Him as Savior, we come to sing. We come to sing joy to the world knowing that there's a joy in our heart that He has brought about because of this death, because of this resurrection. We rejoice. And there is in all of this thirdly comfort. There's comfort in this. Jesus knows far better than any of us what it means to be betrayed. He knows better than any of us what it means to suffer abuse to be tortured, to be utterly abandoned. He has not experienced precisely what all of us have experienced, nor has any of us gotten anywhere close to what He experienced. But He knows what it means. And He knows what it is to trust God, despising the shame for the joy that is set before Him. And as such, when we are reconciled to this Christ, He grants to us then His help, His aid, His presence, and His love. He knows what it is to walk our path. He knows what it is to walk in faith because the Father called Him to it. He's walked this path that we might be comforted and encouraged in our suffering as well. Because He walked this path, the joy set before Him is now set before us. It's set before those who trust in the death and resurrection of Christ and who live their lives for His glory.